Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you here this morning. How is everybody doing? I hope you're all doing well. If you had a great week last week, I rejoice with you. If you had a crappy week last week, I believe God's grace is enough for you, and I pray and I hope that this week will be better for you. Continuing on what Peter just shared about the Rock's Lifeblood team, we came number 10th last year of all the organizations in this city. I think there are over 100 organizations. The Rock's Lifeblood team gave the 10th most blood last year. That's something worth celebrating, but I'm not happy about that. I think we could be number one. How many of you think we could be number one? Come on, raise your hand. Hey, Peter is going to give blood this Sunday. I'm going to give blood. I haven't signed up yet, to be honest, but I want to give more blood this year than last year. So make sure if you have the inclination at all to make a difference in our community in a tangible way, this is one way we can show the people in our community that the Rocks Church, we don't just care about our own people, but we care about the people in our community. So make sure you do that. All right. This morning, I want to start by asking you a very simple question, a question that you probably have never thought about before. And the question is simply this. Why are people who had too much to drink inclined to make bad decisions? Do you know the answer to that question? Well, duh, because they had too much to drink, Fidi. Yeah, that's not the real answer. But you heard the stories, right? When people had too much to drink, you know, we hear funny stories. Some stories are a bit tragic, maybe. But there's a strong correlation between alcohol consumption and and your ability to make good decisions. As far as I know, there's no relationship between being drunk and making good decisions. No one has ever come to me and said, thank God I was drunk last year, otherwise I would have made a bad choice, a bad decision. No one will ever come to you and say that, right? So going back to my question again, why are people who've had too much to drink inclined to make bad decisions? Have you thought about that? The answer is actually quite scientific. Physiologically, um, when you had too much to drink, what happens is you're going to impair this Uh, uh, activities of this part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. I found this really cool graphic that I want to show you. This is the effect of alcohol on your brain. I just want you to pay attention to the thinking part. That's the prefrontal cortex. Let me read it for you. Prefrontal cortex is the part of our brain that is responsible for our thought processes and decision-making. This area is most affected by alcohol, and even small amounts can change our ability to make safe choices and behave appropriately in social situations. This is the part of the brain that connects all the dots that enables you to think rationally to make wise decisions, to make good decisions. And according to experts, this portion of your brain is not fully developed for most people until you're about 25 years old. Or in my case, until you're about 55 years old, all right? (laughs) But seriously, the bottom line is, when you are consuming too much alcohol, you're going to make decisions without rational thinking. It will make you brave when you're supposed to be cautious. It will make you loud when you're supposed to be quiet. It will make you go when you're supposed to stop. So people who've had too much alcohol, it's not that they don't want to. They are not able to connect the dots 
they're not able to see consequences. See, what is obvious is not obvious to them because scientifically they're not able to do so. So, in other words, this is what I'm trying to say. When someone's drunk, they don't consciously ignore their conscience, but it's suppressed. The conscience is actually suppressed or switched off. Some of you might be thinking, why are we uh, talking about this? I'm not a drunkard. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't drink alcohol. This is not relevant for me. It's nice information, but it's not relevant for me. Well, it's going to be relevant for all of us. Just hang on to it for, for a moment. We're actually in part four of our series that we're calling Good Call. And the idea behind this series is this. We want to help you, especially now it's still the beginning of the year, we want to help you to make better decisions so that you will have fewer regrets in your life. Again, some of you might be wondering, why are we talking about this? This sounds like motivational speech to me, and we need to be talking about theology. We need to be talking about doctrine more. After all, we're inside a church, right? This is not a Tony Robbins talk. You're supposed to talk about theology. Well, I'm glad you think that. I think that's a very fair question. In this church, we believe that good theology is highly, highly practical. Why do we believe that? Because Jesus believes that. Jesus believes that theology should be highly, highly practical. And that's what differentiates Jesus from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are great theologians. The Sadducees are fantastic at the law. But why, are Jesus, why is Jesus so different from them? Because according to Jesus, Jesus believes good theology should be practical. That's why when they were, uh, when they were approaching Jesus and they asked Jesus this question, Hey, Jesus, told, tell us, which is the most important commandment? Which is the most important theology? Jesus didn't say, you got to know that God is holy and this and that. No. The answer that Jesus gave is very basic. It seems like too basic, too simple. Love God. Love others. If you want to know what's really important to God, love God, love others. While the Pharisees and the Sadducees were busy discussing theology, discussing the law, what is right, what is wrong, Jesus were busy teaching people about forgiveness and the importance of us forgiving others. Tell me if that's not practical. In fact, Jesus said this at one point. He said, if you're about to go to the temple to worship God and you bring gift to God, but then you realize that you have a strife with your brother. Here's what I want you to do, Jesus said. I don't want you to worship God in the temple. Set aside your gift, go make a man of that broken relationship with your brother, and then come back and worship God. The Pharisees will never say that. You gotta go to the temple, you gotta worship God, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. Theology, good theology, should be highly practical. It should impact how you live on a day-to-day -day basis. It should impact how you live with the others. It should impact how you affect the community, how you affect your church, how, your, how it affects your family, and so on, all right? So in this church, we believe that good theology should be highly practical. And I believe it is God's desire for every one of you, especially at the beginning of the year, to learn to make better choices so that you make less so that you will have less regrets in your life, all right? Why is it important? Because we said this many times in this series, but I think it's worth repeating. Because you are not the only ones impacted by your decisions, isn't it? I said it's last week, but it's, all, it's so true. Isn't it true that you are the way you are today because of 
some of the decisions that others made that affect your life. Isn't it true that you are, some of you at least, you are the beneficiaries of some of the great decisions that your parents made in the past on your behalf? Unfortunately, it may be also true that you are the victims of some of the bad decisions that your parents made in the past and that affect you until today. So it is important that every single one of us, every single one of us, I believe God thinks it's important that we all learn to make better decisions so that we have fewer regrets. And in this series, we want to give you a handle how you can do that. And I said last week, this is what you do, all right? When you're about to make an important decision, imagine you're holding an imaginary remote control like this, all right? And in this remote control, there's this big, fat pause button that I want you to press before you make that decision that you think is going to affect your life, grab that imaginary remote control, press that pause button, and do these three things. Number one, ask good questions, all right? Ask good questions. And number two, you need to answer those questions honestly. And then number three, you act on your honest answers, all right? If you do this, I guarantee you, you will make better decisions and have fewer regrets. And the first question that we shared with you three weeks ago was this. It's the integrity question. And the question is simply this. Am I being honest with myself really? Before you make that purchase, before you go out with that person, before you sign that business deal, stop. Press the pause button. Ask yourself, why am I buying this new car? Why do I want to go out with her? Why do I want that deal so much? And then ask yourself, am I being honest with my answer or am I fooling myself? Or am I listening to the salesperson inside my head? That's the integrity question, all right? And the second question that we taught you is this. It's the legacy question. And the question is simply this. What story do I want to tell? Because you need to realize this. Every decision that, we, that you make is going to become a permanent part of your life that will become part of the story of your life that you will tell others in the future. So the question is, do you want to be the hero in your own story? Or do you want to be the villain of your own story? Will you be proud of the story of your life? Or will you be embarrassed? Will you be ashamed to tell this portion of your life, this story of your life to your children, to your grandchildren in the future? All right? Which option? Ask yourself before you make a decision, which option that will make a good story for me to tell others in the future? Because someday, those decisions that you make are going to be nothing but stories that you tell others. So stop, ask yourself, what story do I want to tell others in the future? All right? And then now we arrive at the third question that I want to share with you this morning, and that is the conscience question. Remember, at the beginning we talked about how drunk people cannot make good decisions because they're not able to. Right? They are actually physically not able to. That part of the brain is not functioning temporarily. Right? Now, this is where it becomes relevant for all of us. Listen and listen well. It's okay. I mean, not okay. But drunk people, they can't help it. Right? They can't help it if they can't connect the dots. That will enable them to make rational you know, uh, choices. They can't help it. All right? But here's the deal, and maybe you never thought of it this way. 
for us, the rest of us. Maybe you claim, I'm not a drunkard. That's fine. That's good. But here's what we do. A lot of sober people, when they're making decisions, drunk people can't help it. But for us, we won't help ourselves. We don't want to connect the dots. All right? We don't want to think rationally. Why? Because it's not easy, isn't it? When you are so focused on that one thing, when you want that car so much, when you want to go out with that person so much, suddenly you don't stop to ask this conscience question. And the question is simply this. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? Are there dots that I need to connect and pay attention to that I could pay attention to? Drunk people cannot, but I can. Am I willing to connect the dots? to think about action and consequence? Am I able to think rationally about this? And I tell you what, for a lot of people, we're not able to. Again, you know, it's, there's a lot of good explanation for this. Uh, we have confirmation bias working against us. You know, we ask advice from people who are already agreeable to us. And we have what psychologists call focalism. When you are focused on one thing, you tend to ignore all the other useful information around you. We are driven by our emotion when we're making decisions. We are driven by our feelings. That's why a lot of people will tell you, when you go to the supermarket to shop, don't go shopping when you're hungry, right? Because what's going to happen when you go to the supermarket and you're really, really hungry? Forget about the shopping list. Suddenly the ice cream looks good, right? Suddenly the chips looks good. You know, suddenly everything looks good and you're going to buy, 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 buy. And before you know it, why do I buy all this stuff? Because you were hungry. You couldn't think clearly. Have you ever been in love? Right? <laughs> it's not a good idea to make decisions when you are in love. Because again, your, your focalism, you're so focused and you don't stop to ask yourself good questions. So is there a tension that deserves my attention? You've got to stop and ask that question. Is there something inside that, that pulls you back? You know, is there a red flag? People call it, Red flag. Is there a red flag that I need to pay attention to? You know? And, and I don't want you to brush it, brush it off too quickly. Okay? This is what you don't want to do. Don't dismiss the tension. When you're feeling that tension, I want you to let that tension to continue to bother you. Right? Don't brush it off. Don't explain it away. Right? Just think about that tension and let it brew and it become stronger and stronger so that you have time to stop press that pause button and think for a moment all right don't say this for example oh maybe i'm just new at this that's why i'm worried about this but there's nothing to worry about this is not illegal this is not prohibited it's okay for me to do this Maybe because I'm inexperienced, that's why I'm feeling this way. I don't think everyone, I don't think anyone else is bothered by this. Maybe it's just me. No, don't do that. Don't dismiss the tension too quickly. Let the tension bother you, all right? And that tension sometimes can, can come from inside. That red flag, that tug, that pull, sometimes it, come, it comes from inside, but that tension can also come from outside. Maybe your mom. Maybe your wife or your husband or your friend brings out something that you've never considered before when you're making, you know, you're making that decision. Maybe your friend will come to you and say, that sounds great. What is your wife going to think about that? Tension? Well, that car looks fantastic. You sure you need to buy a new car? Tension. 
well, he seems really, really nice. But are you sure you're ready to go out with him? Tension. And don't dismiss that tension just because it doesn't come from within. And unfortunately, this is what we tend to do, all right? We all have the tendency to dodge the truth by discounting the truth teller. This is, <laughs> there's a term actually for this. It's called the origin fa fallacy, all right? Uh, when you dismiss the, the truth because you don't like the messenger, okay? What does she know about being married? She's not married yet. What does he know about being a CEO? He's not a CEO. He doesn't know the complexity of the decision that I need to make. What does he know? He's only 17 years old. What, what do they know because they're not in my shoes, right? You dismiss the truth that others are trying to bring to you because you don't like where the source of truth is coming from. Don't do that. Here's what you need to do. If you want to make better decisions so that you have fewer regrets, if something bothers you, let it continue to bother you. Pay attention to the tension, all right? There's actually a, an, an amazing story in the Bible from the life of King David that illustrates this point perfectly because David was about to make, by the way, David was the second king of Israel, and he was about to make a really, really bad decision until he felt a tension, and that tension, unfortunately for David, was really unnecessary and very inconvenient at the time, all right? But thank God, David paid attention to the tension, and I want us to learn from the story of David so that we can follow after his example. For those of you who are new to Bible study, maybe you don't know much about David, not to worry. I'm going to clue you in in a, in a, in a little bit so that we know uh, what we're talking about, all right? David was only a young boy, a young shepherd boy, when a prophet came to his hometown and actually told him that he was going to be the second or the next king of Israel. A shepherd boy, can you imagine? As young as he was, Prophet Samuel came to him and said, you are going to be God's chosen one to be the next king of Israel. The problem was Israel already had a king. His name was Saul. He was not a very good king, not very good at kinging, this guy, all right? And, uh, and so David was promised by this prophet that he was going to be the next king. The only problem was David was not told how or when he was going to be the next king of Israel. And so King Saul continued to be the king of Israel. But however, David's popularity grew and grew while Saul remained the king of Israel especially after his famous encounter with a Philistine giant by the name of Goliath. So David defeated this giant called Goliath, and his popularity just grew to the point that he actually became more popular than King Saul himself. And King Saul got so jealous, he actually wanted to kill David. Why not, right? He didn't want David to be the next king of Israel. He wanted Jonathan, his son, to be the next king of, the next king of Israel. So he pursued David, and David had to flee. So David actually became a fugitive. But by this time, like I said before, his popularity grew not only as a mighty warrior, but he was also famous for being a great leader. So a lot of people actually sided with David. A lot of people wanted to be with David. So David had a small army of his own by this time. 
Unfortunately, this is the army with no home. They had to flee somewhere. And one day, Saul got the intel, got the news that David was going to be in this area, the desert of En Gedi. And so Saul, bringing 3,000 soldiers with him, pursued David in order to kill him, to, to kill the threat to his kingdom, right? And maybe David got the news as well. So he started hiding. He told his men to hide in the different caves in this area. And believe it or not, right? This is a true story. This is what happened. So King Saul and his soldiers were pursuing David. But unfortunately, Saul had to stop to do, guess what? To do a number two. He said, I really need to go. So he said, halt. So all the soldiers stopped. I really need to go. And of all the caves that he could have gone into to relieve himself, guess what? He chose the cave where David and some of his men were staying. So here's what happened. Imagine the, the point of view from David's point of view. David and his men was sitting, hiding behind the back of the cave, right? It was dark, and then suddenly Saul came, and he became a silhouette inside this cave. And Saul, coming from a bright day sun of the Middle East, he couldn't see anything in the cave. So as soon as he went into the cave, deep enough inside the cave, he took off his robe, lifted up his outer garment, and started squatting to do the number two, facing the mouth of the cave, not realizing that David and some of his men were behind, ready to pounce, okay? And then, here's what happened. The soldiers, David's men, were thinking, well, well, well. If this is not from God, I don't know what is, you know? David, this is your chance. This is your opportunity. Man, can you imagine the possibility that King Saul, your number one enemy, went into the cave, the very cave that we were hiding in. Can you imagine how unlikely that was? And this is what David's men said to him. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today, the Lord is telling you. Now, I want to stop right here and tell you, when someone said, God told me, okay? When someone said, God told me to tell you, beware. It's a red flag. Single ladies, I know some of you are desperate, but if some weird man come to you and said, God told me to marry you, you say, in your dreams, right? <laughs> Don't just say yes. Just because this person goes to church, it doesn't necessarily mean it comes from God. Anyway, now's your opportunity, David's man whispered to him. Today, the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do as you wish. Remember, David, the prophet already prophesied. This is going to happen. And this is your only opportunity. We don't want to be fugitive forever. Come and do it. This is definitely of God. And so, under pressure from his men, this is what David did. So David crept forward. He planned to slit the throat of King Saul. But then he had a change of mind, right? Something bothered him. Something inside that is not quite right. He probably couldn't put a finger on it at the beginning. But he said, this is not right. Something is wrong with this picture. All right? So instead of killing Saul, he instead crept forward and cut a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. Can you imagine the disappointment of David's men who had been with David for a long time, waiting for their opportunity? Suddenly, David went back to the back of the cave, not with the head of King Saul, 
But with a piece of ham, with a piece of cloth, what good is a piece of cloth, David? What are you doing, right? Do something that is logical. This is from God. Kill the king, become the king, right? That is like so obvious. David, come on. If you don't want to kill the king, we kill the king for you. But then David felt something, you know? And probably David did know something that a lot of us actually should know. And the truth is this. We believe we can predict the future when we actually cannot, right? A lot of us, when we are making decisions, a lot of us are so sure this is a surefire deal. He is definitely the one. This is definitely a great investment, you know? So we are so sure about the future, but let me ask you, who really can predict the future? No one can. Let me prove it to you. How many of you, I want everybody to play along, all right? You've been checking your Facebook. Just get off Facebook for a little bit. Play along with me. How many of you have ever been disappointed before? Raise your hand. You have ever been disappointed before? Come on. I want to see it. Yeah, a lot of hands. All of the hands, maybe most of the hands. You know what disappointment is? Disappointment is nothing but this. It is what we experience when we mispredict the future, right? That's what disappointment is. You were hoping something was going to happen, and it didn't happen. You are disappointed. So... That means, it tells us one thing, no one can really predict the future. Kill the king and become the king? Not necessarily. Maybe you kill the king and you become even more of a fugitive. That's a possibility as well. And so David, instead of ignoring the tension that he was feeling inside, right? He paid attention to his conscience, okay? And this is what all of us need to do. And if you think I'm making it up, even the author of the story wrote this. He wrote, but then David's conscience began to what? It began to bother him. His conscience began to bother him. The word began indicates that it continued to bother him. And thank God, David let that conscience to continue to bother him. Even after he cut the hem of Saul's robe, that tension continued to bother him. And so he explained to his men about that tension, right? And we fortunately, had the opportunity to know what that tension is that David was feeling. And so he explained to this, his men this way, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. Hey, that's why I was feeling this tension. This guy who was doing a number two, he was not just anybody. He's my master. He's the Lord's anointed. God himself put him on the throne. Who am I? To do otherwise. Who am I to take something away from what God had done? I can't do that. And then maybe David was playing the story of his life. I don't want to be known. I don't want to tell this story to my children, my grandchildren. Grandpa was hiding behind a cave and King Saul was doing number two. He was helpless. And so I slit his throat. That's not a great story, right? So David's conscience began to bother him. And thank God, like I said, he let that conscience to continue to bother him, and he explained to his people, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave and went his way. But before Saul went too far, too far David called him, Saul, Saul! And he showed a piece of the cloth from his robe, same color, and then Saul looked, oh, yeah, a piece of my robe is missing. That means David 
had an opportunity to kill him, but he didn't. But he didn't. And so David made this speech, this wonderful speech. 3,000 soldiers were listening to his speech, and he concluded his speech with this. This is so powerful. He said this, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Wow. Now that's a, a story worth telling to your children and to your grandchildren, right? David said, hey, I could have done it, but I respect you too much. I respect the Lord too much. I know you've done me wrong, but I'm not going to make the shortcut. I'm not going to do what I know I can do, but I'm going to let the Lord to judge between me and you. You know, in my years of experience as, as pastors, you know, I've had, I had been misunderstood. I had been, you know, misrepresented, accused falsely and all that. And I'm telling you, it's so hard, right? It's so hard not to defend yourself. It's so hard not to take revenge. It's so hard not to say something back. But what David did was right. What David did was, was correct. He let that tension to brew inside of him. And he finally, thank God, made that wise decision. You know what happened to Saul? Even he was man enough to think, man, David was a much better man than I am. So he left with his soldiers, and one day when he went off to war, he got killed. An arrow struck him. And then he said, I'm not going to let my enemy to kill me. So he uh, fell on his own sword, and he died. And then the people immediately put David on the throne. He became the next king of Israel without having to kill King Saul. That's a much better story to tell. And thank God, David was paying attention to the tension. So I want to leave you with this question before we go, right? Is there a tension that deserves your attention? If there is one, continue to let that tension bother you. Don't dismiss it too quickly. Don't try to explain it away. Don't try to brush it off. Let that tension brew. The longer, the better. Don't rush into it. You will make better decision that way. I want to tell you a story, a quick one before we go. Um, after my wife and I got married, this is in 1996, a long time ago, uh, we immediately left for the United States because I felt called to uh, work full-time for God in whatever capacity. So... I was preparing myself, I signed up, I enrolled at Dallas Theological Seminary, and my wife, uh, she also went to do further study uh, in piano teaching and piano performance. So both of us left for Dallas in 1996, and we ended up staying in Dallas for six years. I did four years of study and two years of ministry. So I worked at, as a youth pastor in a local church, a big church. I was the youth pastor. We were doing well. We love our church. The church loved us. Hulda loved her teaching. She earned really good money in Dallas, right? She worked for this prestigious piano school, music school. Uh, this is just um, my claim to fame, you know, dropping some names. One of her students is actually the grandson of the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. So you can imagine how well-paid Hulda was. We were doing well. 
I was doing well financially as well because our church was big and was able to pay us really, really well. So we, I was youth pastor for two years. And at the end of the two years, our church approached me and said, hey, we really like you and you, uh, we know that you really like us. We want to apply a green card for you. We want you to stay and work for us permanently. And I, I talked about it with Tulda and said, that's great. We love it here. And so we decided to start looking for a house. We got our bank loan approved. I kid you not, everything I'm telling you today is all true. We got our bank loan approved. We found a house that we really like. We we're about to put an offer. Except there's this tension that lingered, you know. And I didn't quite know what it was. Like I told Hulda, like something didn't feel quite right about this decision for us to apply for a green card and stay in the U.S. So we started praying about it. And after some time, I think we knew what that tension was, all right? So what happened was, uh, back at the beginning days when we were in Dallas, I was, I remember, I was in this large auditorium like this, right? And there were hundreds of overseas students because that school, Dallas Theological Seminary, was quite famous. People from all over the world wanted to come and study at that seminary. So we have people from Africa, from Eastern Europe, from South Asia, from Southeast Asia. You know, they all come, want to study there. And we all shared how God has called us, right, to go back to our own home country. Someone said, I want to go back to Africa to start this ministry. I want to go back to Eastern Europe to start this church. I want to go back to the Philippines, to Thailand, to Vietnam to do this. Guess what? Fast forward four years later, after they all graduate, suddenly, I kid you not, a lot of them suddenly had a new vision to stay in the United States. I'm not saying that they were not genuine call from God, but I just wonder because it is comfortable to live in the U.S. We got paid really well to do what we do. And so we started praying. We started paying attention to that tension. Do we want to stay in Dallas because God called us to stay here? Or is it because of convenience? Is it because of good living? Is it because we earn good money here in Dallas? And we couldn't, we couldn't, you know, say that it's definitely God's call. If we decide at all, we wouldn't be breaking the law, by the way. I would still be serving God. Hulda would be earning honest living. So nothing we do, if we decide to stay in the U.S., get our green card, we will not be breaking the law. We will still be serving God. But again, that tension was not going anywhere and we Thank God, we paid attention and we decided, no, it is definitely not God's will for us to be here. And so we went back to Perth and I started, we didn't have a job or anything, right? I started working as, as a part-time lecturer at, at, at uh, Harvest Bible College and then God gave us the opportunity in 2003 uh, to start this church. And so we began our first gathering in 2004 and I thought to myself, if I hadn't paid attention to that tension, God's church will be built, right? Regardless whether I'm here or not, God's church will be built. But if I hadn't paid attention to that tension, I wouldn't have the opportunity to start this church to make the influence that all of you are making because you're a part of this church. I would miss out on that joy. I would miss out on that opportunity. So I want to encourage you, before you make a decision, no matter how good it sounds, stop, press that pause button, Ask yourself, am I being honest with myself? What story do I want to tell? And is there a tension that needs my attention? And I can guarantee you, you will make better decisions 
and have fewer regrets. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.com.